Today is Friday the 9th of March and we have uh, come together to practice the Dhamma, to chant, to meditate together and to listen to the Dhamma. When we have time to chant the Buddha's teachings and practice uh, Samadhi Bhavana, the aim of this is to cleanse and purify our minds and to find peace inside. Normally uh, through the day we work uh, to do many, we're doing many different activities and it's natural that we might find it hard to develop mindful awareness because we have so much business, so many duties to do. But when we have free time and decide to dedicate that to the practice of the Dhamma. So in the evening or weekends, uh, coming to the temple, Buddha Bodhiwana monastery like this, or at home, we can take the time to chant the teachings, recollect those teachings and meditate to develop peace within our hearts. When we're doing that, we have an attitude at that time to we see the value of developing mindfulness, so we set aside our concerns about work, duties, family matters. And this is to bring the mind, its attention, to uh, the object of its awareness during meditation, so that we can develop sati or mindfulness, present moment awareness. We might focus our attention on the word butho with the feeling of the breath, the breath going in and out. And our aim here is to sustain the mind's attention on the breath and butho. Sometimes when we practice this, the mind will start to calm down because its attention is just focused on the one thing in an undistracted and concentrated way and it's not straying anywhere else, it's not letting its attention go anywhere else. When the mind calms down like this, it experiences rapture, a sense of inner satisfaction arising through this practice of focusing mindful awareness on an object. With that sense of inner satisfaction, we have joy arise and our mind and heart is interested in the practice of meditation at that time. It's not bored or fed up with it. Sometimes we might even experience a deep inner happiness and contentment at the same time. And this deep inner happiness is of the sort that we might have never experienced before. And we might never have realized that the practice of continual mindful awareness on an object could bring such a sense of satisfaction and happiness to the mind. This kind of happiness we call Niramisa Sukha. It's internal happiness that arises through the result of our own efforts made to train the mind to focus its attention on an object inside the mind. It's not arising from contact with external things in the usual way that we talk about happiness. When we wish for a peaceful heart, we have to understand that we can't find true peace and happiness in the world outside of ourselves. Because the nature of the world is sankara, it's a conditioned thing. All the things of the world are conditioned. They arise and pass away. They're subject to old age, sickness and death. They're subject to impermanence, uh, arising, passing away. They degenerate. Whether it's this body, the physical body, or all the material things around us in the world, they're all impermanent. What follows us, even though the body does arise and pass away, gets old and sick and dies, is our karma and the results of our karma. As we've chanted, Kama Sakhomi, Kama Dayada, Kama Yomi, Kama Bandhu, Kama Patisaranam, 
Karma is our refuge, it's our abiding place. It's what we receive and are supported by the fruits of our karma. And that karma can be wholesome and unwholesome. We try in the practice to develop good wholesome karma and abandon unwholesome karma. To do this, we practice, and that practice must be rooted in right view, a right understanding of that karma, that there is good and bad karma, and that they have their fruits which affect us. It must also be rooted in right awareness, that awareness of the state of mind, the clarity of mind, or the unwholesome states of mind. And it must be rooted in right reflection, right wisdom, directed particularly to this body, to see the conditioned nature of this body, that it is subject to anicca, dukkha, anatta, it's impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self. This word anatta means empty of self, no self. Normally, we are deluded in the way we look at our own bodies. We don't see that they're made up of the four elements, earth, air, fire, water, that join together um, temporarily into this form we call a body. Normally this delusion creates a sense of self that says, this is my body. And that hides the truth. But when we contemplate the Anicca Dukkha of this body, we see that all forms, including this body, must degenerate, they're subject to degeneration, they must break up over time. Whether it's our physical body or the physical things around us in this world, the trees, the mountains, whatever, they all have to arise and pass away. So this sense of self that forms around this body and mind that we have here, this sense of it being me or I or mine, us, them, this is a delusion. But with wisdom and understanding, training in that, we can come to see the truth, penetrate through that delusion to see the truth that there's actually no real self in these things. No real self in any of it, in these four elements, in what we call the Hayatana, the internal and external sense basis. You can't find any self in any of that. Ask yourself, are these different 32 parts of this body that we describe, are they a self? Pick any one single part of this body, the teeth for instance, ask yourself, are these teeth really me, are they mine? When they fall out, are they me, are they mine? Normally we're deluded, we're lost in the apparent reality or the conventional reality that says this is a person, it's me, it's mine what we call the samuti-satya, the apparent reality. But with wisdom, panya, developed through the practice of mindful awareness and training in investigation, we can unravel that apparent reality. We can penetrate through to reveal a deeper, more ultimate truth that sees that this body and this mind is actually not the self. These four elements that come together to form this body are not a self. This is seen, or this is said to be seeing the true self. In other words, what is really there. This is the true self beyond the apparent reality or conventional reality. The true self we see is actually subject to anicca, dukkha, anatta. And it's this insight, this awareness that leads to liberation, vimuti. If we lose our sati, our mindfulness and our wisdom, then we start to attach to these five candors, the body, the feelings, the memories, the thought formations and sense consciousness. When we attach, a sense of self arises, there's a sense of me, mine. So the Lord Buddha said, look at this, look at, really investigate these five candors and you'll find that they are anicca. They're subject to arising, passing away. They're unsatisfactory because of this, and they're not a self. There's no lasting self there. They're changing all the time. 
if we use our mindfulness and wisdom to contemplate this, we will see that anicca, dukkha, anatta um, in different ways this will arise, these insights will arise as we investigate. We'll see anicca, or we'll see dukkha, or we'll see anatta, one way or the other. These will become clear and the effect of that on the mind is to uproot this attachment which is normally there through delusion. This attachment which normally forms around rupa, physical or physical or material form, and nama, mentality, mental, or the mind and the contents of the mind. When we uproot our attachments at any time, then the sense of dukkha, unsatisfactoriness or suffering will disappear from our experience and we'll see no self, not self in the five khandhas. We'll see that there's no me and no them or him or her. When we have this kind of experience, then there's no dukkha in the mind, no sense of self, no sense of us or them, me or them. But to see this, we must practice. We use Dhammatana, developing mindfulness, awareness and investigating the truth with wisdom. We use both Samadhi and Panya. Panya can help develop Samadhi and Samadhi can be a foundation for the development of Panya. With Samadhi we have peace of mind, calm, contentment. And this allows us to teach our own mind, our own heart easily when it's calm. So whenever we have free time, we should turn to develop this peace, this calm that is so valuable. Um, Because then we will be able to train our wisdom to really see the truth, the true nature of our existence. Even if we do have a job, we have many duties, we have a family, we should try to find the time to practice in the evenings, in the weekends. And this is practicing to find internal wealth, the wealth that comes through Dhamma practice. Normally we spend maybe 40 hours a week or more finding the external wealth that we have to get in the world, the money and the resources to live. So to give up some time to find this internal wealth, which is helping us to find a way out of suffering, out of the whole cycle of birth and death. Surely we can do that. Uh, We can dedicate that time to raising the level of our mindfulness and our understanding. Really all the different methods of practicing Buddhism, if they are practicing along these lines of sila, samadhi and panya, and we stay within these these guidelines of Siva, Samadhi, Panya, then all the different techniques we can use will bring us to develop the understanding, this understanding, and to see the Dhamma. To see the Dhamma that the Lord would have taught. It's actually very close by to us, but we must have awareness. We have to develop Sati continuously, at every moment, in every posture, whether we're standing, sitting, walking, lying down, we aim to develop sati and observe the truth at all times. First of all, we just develop sati in uh, with awareness of our external posture. As our mindfulness becomes more refined, we can turn to the breath and just be aware of the internal movement of the breath, the in and out breath. Normally, as we practice this, we will be affected, our mind will be affected by the five hindrances. That is, we'll have sensual desire come up, or anger and ill will, or worry, or sloth and torpor, or doubt. All of these obstruct these different good qualities that we're training in. They obstruct the arising of peaceful, concentrated mind states. So we have to practice regularly to find ways to deal with these hindrances and overcome them. Once we have faith and confidence to keep up our efforts in the practice, we might still have some doubts, especially about all the different teachings we've heard, different teachers, different methods. 
But really all of these methods, they come back to the four foundations of mindfulness, the Satipatthana Sutta. Focusing awareness, mindful awareness on the body, on feelings, the mind and Dhamma. Contemplating these five candors to see them in the light of reality. We focus our awareness on the body and that becomes the foundation of Satipatthana, Gayanupasana, Satipatthana. We focus our mindfulness on feeling and that becomes Vaitananupasana, Satipatthana. We focus our sati on sanya, memory, sankhara, mental formations or thought formations. We get to know whether the mind has a state of greed or ill will, anger or delusion, what we call unwholesome, akusala mental states. Or if not, we get to know that the mind is free from greed, free from anger, free from delusion. This is what we call jitanupasana satipatthana, focusing awareness, focusing sati on the mind. And we use sati to become aware and focus on sense contact, knowing the sense contact that is arising and knowing the akusala dhammas, the kusala dhammas, the wholesome, the unwholesome dhammas that are arising from this. This is Dhammanupasana Satipatthana. All of this comes in the Satipatthana teaching that the Buddha gave. Once we have faith and confidence to practice um, Lumpacha, refine this practice down or summarize it as learning to reach the point where our mindfulness is sustained and the mind is not falling into liking, desiring things and disliking or having aversion for things. In other words, a state of equanimity balanced awareness. He used to say that when we, the mind falls into liking and delighting in things, this is karma sukhari karma yoga, sensual indulgence. When the mind unmindfully falls into disliking or aversion for things, this is atakilamatami yoga, uh, or self-mortification, the path of self-torture. Both, the result of both of these is that the mind is disturbed, it's not peaceful. Uh, so don't follow either. The way of practice is to neither let the mind get caught into liking and attaching to things or disliking. You could compare this to a log floating down a river. If it doesn't get stuck on either side of the bank and keeps flowing downstream, then eventually it will reach the ocean. And this practice of developing mindfulness and equanimity and not to fall into the different moods of liking and disliking, this will bring us to see the Dhamma, to reach that ocean. What blocks this, or is the obstacle for this, is the sense of self that arises, our desires, our attachments which arise. And this is what prevents this peaceful equanimity arising in the mind. So this is why we have to practice. We need chanda, this sincere commitment to the practice. Once you have a sincere commitment to the practice, then this will bring forth effort. And the kind of effort you really want to develop is a persistent effort, that sense of not being willing to give up in the practice. And when we consider that this is a noble path, that ennobles the mind, and this is what gives you that, that willingness not to give up. And if we keep putting effort into our, our practice, then it will become the cause for peace to arise in our hearts um, through the presence of sati. If we keep practicing, our mind will come to see and realize the Dhamma that the Buddha was teaching. The Buddha said that all things, all conditioned things, these are all 
what we call samuti satsana, the apparent reality, conventional reality. Uh, when we use mindfulness and investigate the truth, we see through this conventional appearance of the world, and this is where we reach liberation. At first we just understand this intellectually, and so we can say we believe it, we believe what he's saying. But this is still just on the level of intellect. We can understand when the Buddha said, uh, split the body, divide it into the four elements, the earth part, the fire, the air, the water. Split the mind into the internal and external sense bases, the high seen forms and consciousness arising and so on. But deep down, even though we understand this intellectually, the kalesas, the different uh, craving and attachments, are still there in the mind. So we need to develop sati, pure awareness, pure knowing, to penetrate deep down and to realize this truth. So it's not just an intellectual understanding. To do this we have to learn how to read our minds, know and read our minds, know is my mind angry, caught into anger or ill will, is it caught into depression, fear, is it caught into greed. If we really know we have studied then we won't indulge these moods, these mental states, we'll have a sense of detached knowing of them. And this will keep the mind in the middle, this place of equanimity, not falling into liking, not falling into disliking. When we have mindfulness like this, we can make the conclusion, we can conclude to ourselves that if I keep practicing in this way, this will bring me out of delusion, out of suffering, out of attachment. And so, once we can make that conclusion for ourselves, then this will give us the effort to keep practicing, or want to practice more. And the more we practice, then we'll experience little by little more peace of mind. Those factors of concentration, the concentrated mind, will start to come up more often. And as we take our initial application to the meditation object, which are a sustained application, Pity, rapture, sukha, happiness, ekakata, one-pointedness. These different factors will come together and when they do, this will give us a peaceful, concentrated state of mind that will allow us to contemplate further those teachings. We use this foundation of the calm, peaceful mind to contemplate. We contemplate the hyatanas, that is, the sense contact between say eye seeing a form and a consciousness arises, ears hear a sound, nose contact smell and so on. We contemplate this experience as anicca, dukkha, anatta until little by little our attachment for uh, the world, for these different moods and objects of the senses starts to diminish, is reduced through our contemplation that attachment to the liking and the disliking that arises through that sense contact diminishes. Practicing like this, we see the value of all the factors of the path, the sila, the samadhi and the panya. Uh, so we see the value of developing the path and they support, we see how they support each other. We see how the factors of enlightenment, the seven bojanga, work together to give rise to this state of uh, equanimous knowing. We see that having sati, practicing investigation of the Dharma, Dharma which here gives rise to wiriya, effort and energy, uh, tranquility of body and mind, prasadi, um, piti, rapture, prasadi, tranquility of body and mind, samadhi, concentration and ultimately upeka, equanimity. But of course when we practice this, there's no label that comes up describing those states, those qualities. They're things we know through experience. And when it comes down to it, we can say if we still can't let go in our mind, then it's a sign that our mindfulness is still not strong enough. It's, there's not, not enough mindfulness there. 
And that's why we have to keep practicing to improve the strength of our mindfulness, which will support the investigation and the clarity of wisdom. If we can let go of a mood or a mind state, a kilesa, it's because we see that it is not self. Lay people can practice this just as monks do. The word uh, monk in Thai is prat, which really means one whose mind is high, high in the sense it's refined, uh, meaning that they have sila samadhi panya. Or another way of describing one who's practicing like this is they're a yoga vachara, meaning they're a pr- practitioner. One gives them that title. We might think that as lay people we can't realize the Dhamma uh, because we haven't ordained, we're not living in a monastery and practicing like a monk or a nun. But really the important thing is our minds. We have to have faith and we have to be developing sati in a sustained effort. You can compare this to water that drops as rain in the forest on the mountains around here. First when the rain drops, they they reach the ground, they're just individual drops. But little by little they join together to form little rivulets, little streamlets which gradually come together and form mountain streams as they fall down the mountain. Our mindfulness is the same. At first we have moments of mindfulness and these lead to moments of insight and awareness. But from all those moments they join together, together little by little to become a stream of mindfulness where there's firm concentration in the mind. And with that concentration and calm we get clearer and clearer knowing and a deeper and deeper understanding of truth. At first we see impermanence a little. We might notice it in small ways in, in our lives, in this body. But as we keep practicing with mindfulness and keep investigating deeper, we'll see it more often and more clearer. And when we do, this will give rise to this detached state where pity, joy, rapture and sukha, happiness arises. And this is what allows the mind to let go of its attachment to rupa, physical form, nama, mental mentality and the kalesa. Practicing like this, little by little our mind is purified and our heart experiences more and more peace. So really see the importance of the efforts you've been making in the past and are making now in your practice. This effort we call yoga, so the real term yoga means one who's putting effort into the practice and the effort they're making to see the Dhamma. Lumpur Cha used to say sometimes that those people who don't know very much are actually easy to teach. The more we know generally, the harder we are to teach, the harder to see the Dhamma, because we tend to attach to our knowledge. It's a delusion. We can attach to knowledge about the practice, about different techniques, ways of doing it. Uh, we can even attach to states of samadhi, states of calm and happiness that arises in the practice. All that attachment is what we call ego, sense of self, which comes up and actually blocks our practice, blocks our progress. So we have to contemplate to see that the harm of this and let go of it all. That letting go will lead to the arising of real power now, Maya Panya, the, the, the wisdom that comes through insight of a peaceful mind. Whatever doubts we might have, uncertainty about the technique, teachers, this is where um, we let go of them through developing internal wisdom that really understands the peaceful mind and experiences the peaceful mind. You could compare it a bit like um, all of us, we live here in Melbourne. You can see that you can enter Melbourne from different directions, from the north, the south, the east, the west. There's not just one way, that one road that enters into Melbourne. Uh, but all of those roads bring you into the heart of Melbourne. And similarly, the practice of the Dhamma. There are many ways to practice, to bring the mind in to a state of peace. Uh, to the point where it can see that all rupa and nama, all physical mentality and materiality are anicca dukkha anatta. 
when it can, when the mind sees this, it will let go little by little of all its attachments, all its caresses. Little by little, the suffering in the mind, the stress, the unhappiness, will also be reduced, let go, offended. And in its place, we come to see the Dharma. We come to see the Buddha. That is the Buddha in our own minds, the wisdom uh, that arises through the practice. So even if we do have different duties, responsibilities in life, uh, try to keep up your practice and try, try to practice well. Uh, it's only this way, when you really put effort into the practice, sincere effort, that you'll be able to overcome your doubts and uncertainties. Uh, so try to use, make use of the Lord Buddha's teachings and they will be able to help you progress in your life, bring you to more happiness, more peace through your practice. At the back, did you hear clearly? He asked, did what he's saying make sense? Did you understand it? We put in a bigger speaker at the back, so that make sure you get all the Dhamma, nothing is missed. He's asking how many of you drove out from the, from Melbourne or the suburbs tonight? Most of you. Since when you're driving out, you have to see that the distance from wherever you come from to the monastery is actually just that much. Uh, it's just the right amount from wherever you are to here, from A to B. So what our mind tends to do is add on to the experience and it says, or oh, it's far, or it's short, it's near. Um, but that's our own perceptions that we add on to it. Really, the distance is just just the right amount. It's just just in itself okay. If we find it an experience of uh, suffering or makes us uncomfortable, unhappy, then you have to see it's really the mind that is adding on to the experience. So you're driving out. Uh, there's one teacher in. And the sort of catchphrase is just de no, de no, it's just, it's all good, it's very positive, you say everything is good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. <laughs> Keep saying that, then you, you feel better. Then. <laughs> Are there any questions tonight? Just try not to think that because you're a lay person trying to practice a Dharma that can't do it. It's impossible for lay people to progress in the Dharma or realize the Dharma because of you have so many duties. Just be very positive and keep putting effort into the practice. Try to meditate every day if you can. Keep developing mindfulness and you never know, you might find that the results are much better than you think. When the mind is dull, really there's two uh, reasons that lead to sleepiness when we're meditating. One is the obvious one that we might literally be very tired, very exhausted, and physically the body is just is struggling. So the correct thing maybe then is to actually have a rest, because uh, whatever you're doing you can't overcome that. But the other more important one is to know is what we call the, the hindrance of sleepiness or what's called sloth and torpor. And the main thing here is that it's a, a habit of mind that when we sit down to meditate or just when the mind is quiet, it goes into that state of sleep very quickly, slips into it. And that's where you have to start recognizing that that, that, that habit and that all oh, this is a habit I keep doing. And you can actually overcome it, change that habit right, by raising your level of mindfulness. Just elaborating on the cause of sleepiness. When he says it's a habit, you could say that it's the, the mind as a habit, as a regular thing, it has this tendency to seek satisfaction in falling asleep. It likes to fall asleep and it's done it many, many times, so it's, it's an established habit. Um, 
that's the way the hindrances are, we call them hindrances because they're things that tend to come up regularly and we, we keep falling into them so he said it could be another one is uh, doubting and the habit of doubt you become one who is a doubt and you doubt a lot whatever you think about, turn your attention to you start doubting and you're uncertain you think about it a lot and that feed, feed the mind won't let it settle down um, so you can observe these different hindrances to see well, what, what, where are they coming up they most often and you know, some people it might be a tendency to sleep it's just because you've had that there a long time in the mind you could say, oh, when I, my eyes are open and I'm doing other things, I don't have it. But as soon as I sit down to fall, uh, close my eyes, I start falling asleep. And it's a sign that it's, it's a habit that's built up. You have to start to um, be aware of it and then do something about it. And it could be, could be doubting, it could be any of the different hindrances. You have to observe yourself very closely. First thing is just to be aware of the mood of boredom, make it the object of your mindfulness. So say you're meditating on the breath and you're finding that difficult, so the mind starts to go to boredom. Well, become aware of that and say, this is boredom and know what it's like. Get to know what the mood of boredom is like. And then you can ask yourself questions like, is this boredom permanent? Will this mood be there all the time, once it's in the mind? Or in Ajahn's Charles Fraser, it's uncertain, it's not sure. Meaning, you know, it doesn't last, it's not going to last all night. It'll last for a period of time and then it'll stop, it'll change, some other mood will come into the mind. When you bring up that recollection, that reflection of boredom is just one mood that arises, it's there for a while and passes away, then you get to know boredom as an object of mind and bring up mindfulness that way. And little by little, just the same as the sleepiness or doubting the boredom or the hindrance of boredom, you get to know it, familiar with it, and then you can you can let go of it. Um, the other way to deal with it also is to say, well, if the mind is bored, it's uninterested, it's not very satisfied, it doesn't have a sense of contentment then find something to recollect that will bring up a sense of satisfaction, that will bring up more joy, more interest. So you might have to then turn to an object. It could be any aspect of the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, particularly something that in the past you know has stimulated a sense of joy and interest, then you bring that up skillfully, mindfully bring up that recollection, think about it. and. You, know, you remember the mood of being not bored that you've had before in the past when you've been interested in something you bring that up again with awareness and you can, you can change your mood that way it's important to remember with blessings, ceremonies, these kind of things that it's not always just a matter of language, understanding the words. More importantly is the feeling and the mood of the mind that's generated. And uh, it's possible one can listen to chanting and feel happiness arising because of hearing that chanting even though the words aren't immediately clear or one doesn't understand the meaning um, just as it's also possible for someone who fully understands the words to not have that feeling arise because the mind, it, there's no faith and there's, that it doesn't have the you could say the, the barami or the accumulated karmic accumulations to really feel good and happy uh, hearing that chanting Tanajan gave the example of uh, this story of once in a long time ago there was monks chanting the Abhidhamma and the Buddhist teachings, the Buddhist teachings in, in a cave and these teachings are very profound 
chanting in Pali. At the same time, there was approximately 500 or a very large number of bats hanging on the roof of the cave listening. And these bats, obviously, in past lives, has, must have listened to chanting before, had faced before. And although they're animals and they don't know the language, listening to that chanting, their heart gave rise to joy, very happy. That joy actually gave rise to the thought, I'm tired of being a bat and living this life as a bat. And they actually all, at the end of that chanting, let go of the roof of the cave and they dropped down, crashed to the floor and all died. But they're all reborn as humans because of their faith and the good karma that was generated listening to the chanting. And so obviously yeah, it's really the, the mood of the mind that is inspired and comes up through the hearing, the chanting is, is the, the main thing. In Thailand, this um, ceremony, what we call Pangsakula for the living, offering cloth, Sangata and Sangatana, uh, we say for the living, it's not done for a particular dead person at a funeral and doing it when one's still alive. Very common in Thailand, uh, people were doing it regularly with Ajahn Chah and other forest Ajahns. And when one does this ceremony, the, um, the monks chant this chant, Ani Chawata Sankara, by the way, Namino Pachitra Yujandi, which is reflecting on the impermanence of life, that we are all subject to old age, sickness, and death. We're born, we die, we're born, we die. And for, when we do it for the living, it's reflecting on the impermanence, the fact that you know, even within one life, we're, we're as if we've been born and died many times. And it's, you know, it's just for focusing on that, recollecting that truth, bringing up insight into the impermanent nature of our existence, both the physical body and the mind states. And it sort of has a, you could say, it's, that insight has a very refreshing um, effect on the mind. And also, when one makes offerings to the Sangha at that time, then the correct thing to do is always to share the merits with a heart of metta, share the merits with others, and particularly the easiest way is to just say, all beings, and then that's covering everybody, relatives, friends, and everybody. Um, but they also, in Thailand, they'll tend to say, all beings and my karmic debtors, because there always are beings in the past that we've maybe had, uh, we've caused suffering or caused us suffering and there's been a karmic connection and we want them to be happy, us to be happy, so we want to be free from any karmic debts, any unhappy unhappiness, so one shares the merits of this uh, offering, this goodness that is arising with all, all karmic debtors, that's a standard sort of phrase one chants and recollects at that time. So uh, we start off uh, the uh, meditation by using the uh, uh, breathing as an object. As we uh, uh, progress and until the uh, breathing becomes so subtle that uh, uh, it's no uh, more acceptable. And also at that point in time, that the uh, mind is uh, very equivalent, so there's no of and as long as the mind is peaceful and focused on the breath like that, just keep doing that. Just keep focusing with that state of mindful awareness on the breathing. When it starts to think again, at that point, then you want to start turning your attention to contemplate the body, the physical body. And in light of the three characteristics and each of the character. Should there be uh, also no perception of the body uh, and also 
distance reading has become imperceptible. Uh, should we uh, thought to bring the reading back or do something else? We don't have to do anything. We don't have to sort of try and make the breath coarse or have to come out of that state or do anything. If you just get to the point where the breath is very refined or you can't even tell whether it's going in out, just keep with that knowing and just keep there as long as you can, as long as the mind is content to just stay there with that sense of inner knowing, awareness, and the breath might have completely disappeared, sense of the body is gone, you just stay with that state. When it reaches its own time, in its own time, it will start to come out, withdraw from that state. That's the time to contemplate the body. How do we deal with superstition? Like, for example, if you uh, it's very popular in Asian countries to get reading or something about like you know the year and what kind of life and things like that. And if you get a bad reading, you're unhappy. If you get a good reading, you're very happy. You know, so, um, how do you overcome this stuckness in this? The most useful thing to believe in and use is karma. That's where we should focus our beliefs, because this is wise believing. The fruits, the results of our actions, good and bad, will come back to us, and all of us are receiving the fruits of our good and bad actions. The happiness we receive is a result of the skillful things we've done, the unhappiness, unhappy experiences that come to us, and that's the result of our unskillful karma. And if you use that, this as your guideline, then you really don't need to go to the astrologer or the the people and believe in that sort of thing because this is far more beneficial, more practical. Just keep coming back to looking at what you're doing in the present moment from day to day. Is it wholesome or unwholesome, skillful or unskillful, uh, or whatever the body speaks your mind? And the more skillful karma you're developing, then the more happiness you'll experience, the more unskillful karma you, you let yourself get into and do, then you'll experience the suffering for that. If you just keep working on that, then that will guide you for your whole year, and you'll you know, have a very successful year. <laughs> Mindfulness um, of breathing, which is maybe uh, seven days or seven, in uh, a second, seven seconds, you can um, uh, analyze it. I haven't heard seven seconds. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> seven, something like that. Uh, not sure about this. He's he's heard six days, six months, six years. So. Really, it doesn't really matter whether it's six years or seven years. The important thing is you have to be careful of your own thoughts getting away with you and perhaps saying, oh, I've been practicing for more than six or seven years and why haven't I been, why I'm not enlightened yet? And we have to see that, you know, what the Buddha was talking about was somebody who's practiced and perfected their mindfulness and so it's sustained and probably we haven't done that yet, we have just simply we haven't reached that same level yet that he was referring to that would lead to this enlightenment within a certain time span. Um, it's a bit like you go and apply for a job and the, the boss, the owner of the company or whatever says, well you can work for me and my estimate is if you work for me for six years then you're reach this level, you know, have this level of productivity and achievement and then I'll give you this kind of bonus and this salary. Um, but you work and you work, but if you don't reach that level then of course it's not going to give you the bonus. And it can be like that, you have to accept that although we, we put effort into the practice and that we, are, we, are, we have faith and we're practicing mindfulness, we might not yet be quite reaching the level that the Buddha was referring to in that. Um, so uh, use that to, to come back to say, oh, I have to put in more effort into my practice and you re redouble your efforts. And uh, if you put in the efforts, you know, sooner or later you'll, you'll become enlightened. He said maybe you're closer than you think. 
it's very difficult to measure these things. We could be very close to becoming a superpower. We don't, uh, we don't know it. It's a bit like you're swimming in the ocean and it's very dark and you, you don't know where, how far away the shore is. Um, you just keep swimming and you'll, you'll meet, meet the shore. Maybe it'll take a while, take a year or two, but um, just keep swimming and you, you'll reach it. And the important thing is to have that sincerity of effort put your effort into developing mindfulness and as the, the mind gathers together and becomes unified then then you have to have the barami to really see penetrate you know, the truth of, that we've been talking about and see this any impermanence of these five candidates in the Chilu Panatopa. Yes, it is possible to uh, fully reach the enlightenment become an arahant as a lay person. But in practice it's likely before that happens uh, the practitioner, that person, would be looking for a way out of the household life. Uh, and as Jan thinks, probably even just the level of a soda partner, they're likely to find that you know, the the level of their wisdom and insight is developed to the point where they're seeing that the household life, you know, it's, uh, there's a lot of, it, would, it would, wouldn't seem that meaningful <coughs> to carry on in the household life, the sort of things that we do as householders, they're really not necessary anymore, the mind has gone beyond that, so they'd be looking for somewhere peaceful, quiet, and most likely it would be a monastery, but somewhere peaceful and quiet to pursue their practice. Maybe even not yet rich Sodapana, maybe just someone who's attained and is regularly attaining deep samadhi, maybe jhana. They would already be feeling uh, that there's too many duties, too too busy, too many things going on in their life. I want to find somewhere peaceful and quiet to practice. So in practice it's unlikely they would um, reach that point, you know, become enlightened as a lay person. They probably would have already left the lay life a long time before. Is it possible that he can live as a hermit or you know, live in a very quiet life as a living person? Yes, there's many people who have done that in the past. And one way to do it. So another question is that I can is it necessary to know what level one is attain or not possible for this to carry on? The important thing is your whatever knowledge of attainment you gain, your wisdom would be telling you not to attach to that, not to form a sense of self around that, be putting it down or letting it go. But for sure, you, if you practice, you know what you've let go of and what you haven't. Whether you call that attainment, you know, I've reached this level or not, is, is another thing, but you know whether your mind is peaceful, whether it's let, what places it's let go of, you'll know, and you know how you did that, because you've done it. So that knowledge would be there, but you won't form a sense of self around it, or you, you have to be careful not to label it in the eye of a thing, this or that, because then it becomes another attachment, doesn't it? Imagine I think maybe it's quite late now, it's almost 10 o'clock, maybe that's enough for tonight. We can uh, pay respects to the Buddha, I'm saying.